Osho, Tao, The Pathless Path, Volume 1 Talks on Extracts from the Lita Zoo Given at the Osho Commune International, Pune, India Discourse number 8 The first question It is from Poonam Can one believe in Tao, not interfering with other people's lives, accepting what is now, and by profession be a psychotherapist? What or how is a Tao way of doing therapy? It is of tremendous significance. The first thing, can one believe in Tao? Tao does not depend on belief. You cannot believe. Tao knows no belief system. It does not say believe. That's what other religions do. Tao is dropping of all belief systems then arises a totally new kind of trust. Trust in life. Belief means believing in concepts. Concepts are about life. Trust is not concerned with concepts. Trust is immediate, direct, in life. It is not about life. Belief is far away from life. The stronger the belief, the greater the barrier. Tao is neither a belief nor a disbelief, but dropping of all beliefs and disbeliefs. When you drop all beliefs and disbeliefs and you are immediate, in contact with life, a trust arises, a great yes arises in your being. That yes transforms, transforms totally. So the first thing you ask, can one believe in Tao? No, it is not a belief. Don't approach through the door of belief, otherwise you will reach into a philosophy, into a religion, into a church, into a dogma, but you will never reach into life. Life simply is. It is not a doctrine preached by somebody. Life is simply there all around you, within and without. Once you don't look through words, concepts, verbalizations, it reveals to you. Everything becomes so crystal clear, so transparent. In that transparency, you are not separate from it. How can you believe in it or disbelieve in it? You are it. That is the way of Tao, to become Tao. The second thing, 
Can one believe in Tao not interfering with other people's lives? Once you have in, stopped interfering with your own life, you have stopped interfering with others' lives. If you continue to interfere with your own life, you are bound to interfere with others' life. That is just a reflection. That is just a shadow. Stop interfering with your own life. Then suddenly all interference disappears. Because that is absurd. Life is already going where it needs to go. Why interfere? The river is already flowing towards the ocean. Why interfere? Why direct it? If you start directing the river, you kill it. It becomes a channel. Then it is no more a river. Then the life has disappeared. Then it is a prisoner. Then you can force it anywhere you want to take it. But there will be no song and no dance. It will be carrying a corpse. The river was alive. The channel is dead. The channel is just for the name's sake a river. It is not river. Because to be a river means to be free, to flow, to seek, to follow one's own intrinsic nature. Not being directed, not being pulled and pushed, not being manipulated is the very quality of being a river. Once you have understood that you grow when you don't interfere in your own life, when you understand that you grow when nobody interferes in your life, how you can interfere in anybody else's life? But if you interfere with your own life, if you have some ideal how it should be, the ideal brings interference. The should is the interference. If you have some ideal that you have to be like Jesus, or like Buddha, or like Lao Tzu, that you have to be a perfect man or a perfect woman, that you have to be this and that, then you will interfere. You have a map. You have a direction. You have a fixed future. Your future is already dead. You have converted your future into past. It is no more a new phenomenon. You have converted it into a dead thing. You will carry the carps. You will interfere in everything. Because whenever you will feel you are going astray, and by astray I mean astray from the ideal, Nobody has ever gone astray. Nobody can go astray. It is not possible to commit error. Let me repeat it. It is impossible to go astray. Because wherever you go is God. And whatsoever you do culminates into divinity. All acts naturally are transformed into the ultimate. Good and bad, all.
sinner and saint all reach to God. God is not something that you can avoid. But if you have some ideal, you can postpone. You cannot avoid. Sooner or later, God is going to take possession of you. But you can postpone. You can postpone infinitely. That is your freedom. Having an ideal means you are against God. Gurjev used to say that all religions are against God. And he has something. He has a great insight into it. All religions are against God because all religions have given ideologies, ideals. No ideal is needed, no ideology is needed. One should live a simple, ordinary life. One should allow God to do whatsoever he wants. If he wants you to be this way, good. If he wants you to be that way, good. Let his kingdom come. Let his will be done. That is the Taoist attitude. Then there is no interference. When there is no ideal, there is no interference. And once you enjoy the freedom that comes when you don't have any ideals, how can you interfere in anybody's life? You interfere into the life of your children. You interfere in the life of your wife, your husband, your brother, your friend, your beloved. You can interfere only because you think by interference you are helping them, you are crippling them. Your interference is like what Zen people say, they have the right expression, they say, putting shoes on a snake. <laughs> you are helping. You may be taking great effort, doing great things, putting shoes on a snake, thinking that how the snake will walk without shoes. There may be difficulty. And the roads are rough. And there are thorns also. Life is full of thorns. So help the snake. Put shoes on the snake. You will kill the snake. All effort to improve upon people is just like that. But it is a natural corollary. If you are trying to improve yourself, you will try to improve others. Your own disease goes on overflowing on others. Once you stop improving upon yourself, once you accept as you are unconditionally, with no grudge, with no complaint, once you start loving yourself as you are, all interference disappears. Third thing, accepting what is now, can one be by profession a psychotherapist? He will be a therapist but in a totally different sense, not in the Freudian sense. He will be in the real sense a therapist. And what is the real sense of therapist? He will allow freedom. 
he will simply be a presence, a light, a joy. He is not going to change the patient. Though the patient will be changed, he will not make any effort to make him well. He will not make any effort to make him normal. He will not make any effort to help him to be adjusted to the, this neurotic society. He will not try to do anything. He will simply be a presence, a catalytic agent. He will love. He will share his energy with the patient. He will sour his energy on the patient. And remember, love is real therapy. Everything else is secondary. In fact, there are so many psychotic patients in the world because they have not been loved. Nobody has loved them. That's why they have gone berserk. They have lost contact with their center because it is only in love that one becomes centered. Their illness is not the real problem. The real problem is deep down that they have never been loved, that they have never known the milieu of love. So a Taoist therapist will simply give his love, his understanding, his vision. He will share his energy and he will not in any way interfere. And the healing is going to happen. Healing will happen not by any effort of the therapist but by his no effort, by his inactivity, by his tremendous passivity. Have you watched it happen? Sometimes you are ill and you call the doctor and the doctor comes and suddenly just his entering in the room and you are no more as ill as you were before. He has not given you any medicine. Just his presence, his care, his love. Just he puts his hand on your head, takes your pulse and suddenly you feel a change is happening. And he has not done anything. No medicine has been given. He has not even diagnosed. Even before diagnosis, if the doctor is a loving person, 50% illness has disappeared. And for the remaining 50%, he has to do something because he also does not know that man cannot heal anybody. It is always God who heals. Man can only become a passage for the healing energy. That's why healing works. Just three, four persons, loving persons, sit around the patient holding his hands, singing a song, chanting. And suddenly, the patient feels a tremendous upsurge, a transformation happening. What is happening? These four persons in love have become vehicles of God for Tao. Somebody can be a therapist, 
Tao is not against therapy, but the therapy will have a different quality. It will be Wu Wei. It will be action in inaction. It will be feminine. It will not be aggressive. It will not force the patient to be healed. It will simply pursue it. It will simply seduce the patient to be healthy, that's all. There is going to be great seduction. Uh, the therapist is centered, grounded, is flowing. His presence, his light, his love will help the patient's energy to come up to surface in his being. It is always there. He has lost contact. In Zen temples, they treat, they treat mad people. They don't do anything. They take care. When they pray, the mad person comes and sits. And they are not praying for the mad person at all. That is not their concern. They are praying as usual. They are chanting as usual. And the mad person sits there. One hundred Buddhist monks chanting. And the beautiful chant. And the wife and the atmosphere, and the silence of a Zen community, and the trees, and the rock garden, and the whole atmosphere of it. And the patient simply sits. In fact, they don't call him even a patient. Because to call a patient a patient is to fix the idea in his mind that he is ill. It is a suggestion. It is very dangerous. They don't call him a patient. A person who needs prayer, a person who needs meditation, a person who needs relaxation, but not patient. Not that he is ill. Not that something has gone wrong, that he is a nut. No. The very idea that somebody is a nut gives him the, the fixation that I am a nut. And he goes on repeating it. And he tries hard not to be a nut. And there is a certain law discovered by hypnotists. They call it the law of the reverse effect. If you try too much not to be a nut, you will become a nut. You can try and see. You try for seven days not to be a nut. Continuously remain conscious not to be a nut. Watch every act that you do. And within seven days you will go nuts. The continuous repetition will create the reverse effect. In a Zen monastery, they think about the person that he needs relaxation that he was too much in the world and has become too tense, that he is too much tired. That's all. No 
disvalue in it. Just a compassion. He is not hospitalized. He is sent to a temple. Temples used to function in the old times as the places of therapy. Temple is the right place for therapy. Because the very idea is different. You are not a patient, you are not to be hospitalized. You are not to lie down on the psychiatrist's coach. You go to the temple. You go to the temple to renew your contact with God. To renew your contact with God. Because He is the source of healing and health and wholeness. Yes, a person can be a psychotherapist. In fact, only a Taoist can be an authentically real psychotherapist. But he will not be the doer. He will be just a vehicle, a medium. The second question, I imagine you can talk about all the traps of growth because you experience these problems in your life. Would you be willing to talk about your real life experiences rather than just the abstracted impersonal concepts? The real cannot be talked about. The moment you talk about the real, it becomes an abstract concept. The moment something is expressed, it becomes a concept. That's why Lao Tzu says, the Tao that can be talked is no more Tao. The truth that can be uttered becomes a lie. The real cannot be talked about. The real can only be experienced. And it is good that the real cannot be talked about. Otherwise people will simply gather words about the real and forget about experiencing it. By its very nature, reality is elusive. It never comes into words. So all that I can do is to show you the traps so that you can avoid the traps. If you can avoid all the traps, you will fall into the real. That is the ancient most method. The Upanishads call it neti, neti. Neither this nor that. They say so to the disciple, this is not true, that is not true, go on showing him what is not true. When you have covered the whole field, when you have shown him everything that is not true, then suddenly he will become aware of truth. Because now only truth is left. So all that I can do is to talk about the traps. The question is relevant. Many people think that you should talk only about God, about truth, about moksha, nirvana. Why you should talk about jealousy, hatred, anger? Because if you go to other ashramas in India, you will not find therapies there. You will not find encounter groups. You will not find gestalt groups. You will not find bioenergetics. 
you will not find a rolfing and a structural integration. No. They simply read the scripture. They talk about truth. Here the whole approach is totally different. Because you can go on talking about truth and it is meaningless unless the traps are broken. My whole effort here is to break all the traps. Once traps are broken, blocks are removed, the stream of truth flows. It is not a question about the esteem, it is only a question of the rocks that are blocking the path. The whole approach has to be understood and that's what I go on doing while I am talking. You may be surprised because for all these few days I have not been talking about Tao, rather I have been criticizing Confucius. He is the trap. He has to be broken, demolished completely, with no compassion. He has to be smashed to pieces and bits and thrown. Once Confucius is gone, Lao Tzu enters. You would like to invite Lao Tzu, but Confucius is sitting on the throne. He has to be dethroned first. Once he is dethroned, suddenly you will see Lao Tzu has been always there. The presence of Confucius was hiding him. Neti, neti. The negative approach. My approach is negative. I will never talk about reality. Because it cannot be talked about. I only talk what is unreal. What is wrong. Once you understand the false as the false, you will become capable of knowing the real as the real. The third question, Bhagwan, when I am going to become enlightened? Please don't be in such a hurry, because I will be left without business. <laughs> this is not fair. If I have so much compassion for you, you should have at least a little compassion towards me too. Go slowly. Let me also enjoy the masterhood. <laughs> the psychiatrist leaned heavily on the bar and began to drink long, hard doubles. His face was wreathed in sorrow and he was at the same time ominously sad. Another psychiatrist happened by, John, he exclaimed, John, my good fellow, you don't seem to be yourself tonight. Care to tell me about it? There is not much to tell, John replied. Remember that rich nut I was treating for years? The one who practically kept me in business from the start? I certainly do. 
you mean the one who kept dreaming for 30 years that he was still in high school? John nodded. What happened? Last week he graduated. <laughs> Don't graduate so fast. Go slowly. Even if you want to be in a hurry, remember it. There are things which cannot be done in a hurried way. And enlightenment is one of those things. If you hurry, you will never arrive. If you go slowly, there is a possibility of arriving. And if you don't go anywhere at all, if you simply sit where you are, you have arrived. It is not a question of any distance that has to be travelled. It is not a goal far away. Naturally, if the goal is far away, you can go faster. Mullah Nasuddin works in an office and he lives just in front of the office and is always late. The boss, tired, one day said that this is too much. I have been telling you again and again and again. Don't you see the other person who works with you? He lives three miles away and is always in time. And you live just in front of the office and you are always late. Mullah Nasuddin, it is simple. It is logical. If he is late, he can hurry. Three miles. If I am late, I am late. There is no way to hurry. The gap. He can run. He can take a taxi. But what to do? I'm, if I am late, I am late. I am just in front of the office. There is no way to hurry. Remember, enlightenment is not somewhere else. Neither in space nor in time. It is here now. And if you hurry too much, you will go astray, you will go far away. The whole thing is to slow down. To slow down so deeply that one day nothing moves in you. In that very moment, in that moment of no movement, you will become enlightened. Particularly for the Western mind, speed is an obsession. They think that from Bullock Cart we have come to the jet. So why not speedy methods can be developed for enlightenment? If the coffee can be instant, then why not nirvana can be instant? But they don't understand. Because nirvana is not somewhere else. Otherwise it could have been possible to go with his speech. It is already the case. You have to come only where you are. 
you have to be that which you already are so the faster you go the far away you will reach far away from enlightenment it is not a question of reaching it is not a question of arriving you have simply to slow down and that's what the whole teaching of tao is and my teaching too is slow down relax forget ideals forget that there is any future let this moment be all relax enjoy small things of life so that you are not going that you are not always projecting some desire in the future you don't have any future then one day it happens you have fallen tremendously into the present moment nothing moves in that moment of no movement one simply recognizes who am i all these meditations that you are doing here are nothing but to help you to relax to forget the future to be here now singing dancing chanting humming it is a present moment activity you get absorbed into it listening to me is a meditation you get absorbed into it you are not worrying to go anywhere you are simply here with me in the east satsanga has been one of the most valuable methods for enlightenment the east has said that if you are in the presence of the master nothing else is needed just be in his presence just sit silently with him just be with him and enlightenment will take care of itself whenever the right moment comes it will happen you need not worry about it you need not plan about it otherwise you will be in a turmoil when this enlightenment is going to happen then enlightenment has also become a desire a greed a lust the fourth question you said the other day that duty was a four letter word but i have also heard you say many times that you want your sanyasins to be tremendously responsible please tell me are not a sense of duty and a sense of responsibility the same thing i hope beloved bhagwan that i am not confusing you you cannot <laughs> because i am utterly confused <laughs> you cannot confuse me any more i am absolutely confused duty and responsibility are synonyms in the dictionary but not in life in life they are not only different they are diametrically opposite duty is other oriented 
responsibility is self-oriented. When you say, I have to do it, it is a duty, because my mother is ill. I have to go and sit by her side, or I have to take flowers to the hospital. I have to do it, sees my mother. Duty is other-oriented. You don't have any responsibility. You are fulfilling a social formality. Because she is your mother, you don't love her. That's why I say duty is a four-letter dirty word. If you love your mother, you will not say this is a duty. If you love your mother, you will go to the hospital, you will take the flowers, you will serve your mother, you will be by her bedside. You will massage her feet, you will feel for her. But it will not be a duty, it will be responsibility. You will respond out of your heart. Responsibility means capacity to respond. Your heart vibrates. You feel for her, you care for her. Not that she is your mother. That is irrelevant. You love the woman. She is your mother or not, that is secondary. But you love the woman. You love the woman as a person. It is a flowing from your heart. And you will not feel that you have obliged her. And you will not go advertising all around that I am such a duty-fulfilling son. You will not feel that you have done something. You have not done anything. What you have done? Just taking few flowers to the mother who is ill and you feel you have done a great obligation? That's why I say duty is dirty. The very word is dirty. It is other-oriented. Responsibility has a totally different dimension. You love, you care. You feel. It comes out of your feeling. Duty comes out of thinking, sees your mother, that's why. Therefore, it is a syllogism. It is logical. You go somehow dragging yourself. You would like to escape, but what can you do? Your respectability is at stake. What people will say? That your mother is ill? And you are enjoying in the club? And you are dancing? And your mother is ill? No, your ego will be hurt. If you can avoid this mother, Without your respectability being affected and your ego being affected, you would like to avoid. You will go to the hospital and you will be in a hurry to rest. You will find some reason that I have to go. Because there is an appointment. There may not be. You want to avoid this woman. 
You don't want to be with her. Even five minutes are too much. You don't love. Duty, I am against. But responsibility, yes, I say, my sannyasins have to be tremendously responsible. And once you drop duty, you are free to be responsible. In my childhood, my grandfather used to like her feet to be massaged. And he will call anybody whosoever was passing. He was very old. And he will say, will you massage my feet? Sometimes I will say yes and I will massage and sometimes I will say no. He became intrigued. He said, what is the matter? Sometimes you say yes and nobody massages my feet so lovingly as you do. But sometimes you simply say no. I said, whenever it is a duty, I say no. Whenever it is a responsibility, I do. He said, what is the difference? I said, this is the difference. When I feel love, when I would like to massage your feet, then I do. When I feel it is just a formality, because you have asked, and I have to do it, and my mind will not be here, because children are playing outside, and they are inviting me, and I will not be here at all, I don't want to do it, because that is ugly. So sometimes it will happen, I will have to say no to him when he wanted. And sometimes I will simply go to him and ask, would you like a little massage? I am in the mood. I will really do a beautiful job. You allow me. Do whatsoever comes out of your feeling, out of your heart. Never repress your heart. Never follow your mind because mind is a social byproduct. It is not your reality. Move out of your reality. Function out of your reality. Don't function out of principles, etiquette, patterns of behavior, what Confucius calls gentlemanly. Don't be a gentleman. Be a man that's enough. Be a woman, that's enough. And be truly a man, truly a woman. Sometimes you will feel like doing something, do. Pour your heart in it. It will be a beautiful flowering. Sometimes you don't want to do. Say it so. Be clear about it. There is no need to camouflage it. The fourth question, why one clings to the old, why one is afraid of the new? There is a natural reason in it. With the old one is efficient, with the new one is awkward. With the old you know what to do, with the new you will have to learn from ABC.
With the new you start feeling ignorant, with the old you are knowledgeable. You have done something again and again. You can do it mechanically, you need not have any awareness. With the new you will have to be alert, aware, otherwise something may go wrong. Have you not watched it when you learn driving? You are so alert. When you have learnt it, you forget about it. You sing a song, you listen to the radio, you talk to the friend, or you think thousand and one thoughts, and driving continues as a mechanical thing, robot-like. You are not needed. The old becomes mechanical, habitual. That's why with the new comes fear. That's why children are capable of learning. The older you grow, the less is the capacity to learn. It is very difficult to teach an old dog new tricks. He will again and again repeat the old tricks. Those tricks he knows. I have heard the foreign diplomat was unable to speak English. When the lunch bell rang at the United Nations Assembly, he stood behind a man at the food counter and heard him order apple pie and coffee. So he ordered apple pie and coffee too. For the next two weeks he kept ordering apple pie and coffee. Finally he decided he wanted to try something else. So he listened attentively while another man ordered a ham sandwich. Ham sandwich, he said to the counterman. White or rye? The counterman asked. Ham sandwich, the diplomat repeated. White or rye? The counterman asked again. Ham sandwich, the diplomat repeated. The counterman grew very angry. Look Mac. He roared, shaking his fist under the diplomat's nose. Do you want it on white or rye? Apple pie and coffee, answered the diplomat. <laughs> Who should take such a bother? It is becoming too dangerous. That's why one goes on with the old. But if you live with the old, you don't live at all. You live only for the name's sake. Only with the new is life. Only with the new. And only with the new is life. Life has to be fresh. Remain a learner. Never become a knower. Remain open, never become closed. Remain ignorant. Go on throwing knowledge that accumulates automatically, naturally. Each day, each moment, free yourself from all that you have known and again become a child. To be that innocent like a child is the way 
to live and to live abundantly. The fifth question is the childishness is the childishness of senility anything to do with awareness? Is senility a disease of the West only? What is senility? It has nothing to do with East or West. East and West may differ on the surface, deep down there is no difference. Man is man. Maybe few different patterns in the East and few different patterns in the West, but they are on the surface. They are only skin deep. Just scratch a little and East and West both disappear. Deep down is humanity, one. This question is significant. Is the childlessness of senility anything to do with awareness and what is senility? Senility is becoming old without becoming mature. Senility is growing old without growing up. Then as the end result the senile person becomes very childish because his child has never become a grown-up. He has been hiding the child always inside him. He was occupied in thousand and one things of the world and the child was waiting and waiting. Now he has become retired. Now all those occupations are gone and his energy also is weakening. So all those controls also gone because when you control yourself and you pretend something that you are not and you hide something that you are, great energy is needed. Old man naturally is losing energy. His controls gone. He cannot control. So that which is hidden inside him surfaces. He again becomes childish. But remember, that is not what Jesus means when he says, only those who are like children will be capable of entering into the kingdom of God. Childlikeness is not childlessness. Childlikeness comes only when a person is not only growing in age, but is growing up is becoming integrated inside. It is not only a physiological phenomenon that he is 60, but psychologically, spiritually, he has become a grown-up person, mature, ripe. Then in the end, the person becomes childlike, innocent. Childlessness is not a value, it is a disvalue. Childlikeness is a great value. To be childlike means the circle is complete. The man has lived in the life, lived and loved, experienced all that was available and has come to conclude 
that there is nothing more valuable than innocence. He has known and known that knowledge is futile. So he has dropped knowledge. He has known all the cunning ways of the world. He has been cunning. He has been deceptive. He has been deceived. Others have been cunning to him. He has known all that. But he has grown up. And he has come to conclude that that is just useless, meaningless. Deceiving, deceived, all is a game. It does not lead you anywhere. It is a dream. He has dropped all those games. A really mature person is one who has no more any obsession with any game. He lives simply, innocently, without any pretensions and without any mass. That is the innocent person. A grown-up person becomes innocent, childlike, simply getting old in age, one becomes senile, ugly, rotten, and one day when your energies are gone, your childishness surfaces and the old people start behaving in foolish ways. Remember, to be foolish is one thing and to be innocent is totally another. Sometimes they look similar, but they are not. An innocent person sometimes may look foolish, but he is not foolish. You can cheat him, but he is not foolish. And while you are cheating, he is feeling compassion for you. One day you will understand that you were a fool. He was not a fool. A foolish person looks innocent, but is not innocent. He is also cunning, though his cunningness is not of much developed qualities. His cunningness is not very complex. He is also cunning, but people are more cunning than him. Than him, Relatively he is less cunning. So he looks foolish. An innocent person looks similar to the foolish, but he is not. The childishness is foolishness, stupidity, idiotic it is, childlikeness is totally different. It is a flowering of innocence. Saint Francis is childlike. Jesus is childlike. Lao Tzu is childlike. The sixth question. The last time I was here, I was myself as a beggar. This time a thief. Please comment. You are growing well. <laughs> this is the spiritual path. A disciple when he comes first to the master is naturally like a beggar. He is begging. He is tremendously desirous, greedy. 
he goes on asking this and that. When you have grown a little into the world of discipleship, you become a thief. Then you start feeling that truth cannot be given, it can only be stolen. Yes, this is the way how a disciple grows. Truth has to be stolen from the Master. It cannot be given. You will have to be very, very intelligent, aware, to steal it away. If I can give it to you, it would have been simple, but I cannot give. You have to become very, very alert. Do you know? The art of thief is the art of awareness. When a thief enters into somebody's house in the dark night, no light, he may not have entered in the house before at all. He may not know the topography of the house. But still he functions well. He moves in somebody else's house where he has never entered as if it is his own house. He has a tremendous confidence. And he moves so alert that he does not make a single sound. His breathing is very quiet. He moves as if he is not there. Great art. It is said about one Zen master that he used to send his disciples to learn the art of stealing. He used to send to a master thief, go to the master thief and learn. Such self-confidence as a thief has, such awareness, such cautious alertness, such mindfulness, because a thief has to be very, very mindful. He needs presence of mind. You cannot rehearsal it. It is not an acting. You cannot prepare for it. Nobody knows what is going to happen. You cannot arrange for it. You cannot prepare for it. Anything is possible. It is very accidental. It is said about a master, a master who was well known all over Japan. He was a master thief. His son asked the old man that now you are getting old and teach me your arts. The old man said, okay, but this is such an art cannot be taught. It is more like a neck, not like knowledge. But I will try. You come with me tonight. And the young man was very afraid. And the old man was very old, 70 years old. And the old man went and he broke a wall. And the young man was perspiring and it was a cold night. And he was trembling. 
But the father was working so at ease. That is, this is his house. He broke a hole. He entered, called the son. He went in. But his breathing was so chaotic. He could not control it. And the father was as if there is no breathing. Then the father took him in. He opened many doors. And they went to the main chamber of the house. And he opened a cupboard and told the son, go in and bring the best dresses there are. And the son went in and the father locked the door, made loud noise and ran away. <laughs> now the whole house was awake and everybody started searching, where is the thief? The wall has been broken, certainly. And this young man inside the cupboard, and the cupboard locked. He started thinking, has my father gone mad? Is this the way to teach? And he started praying to God that this is my first and last. I will never <laughs> even think about it. Then a servant came with a candle and he looked around and suddenly the young man found that he is making a noise like rats make. It was very intuitive. And the servant opened the door and looked in and the young man blew the candle, rushed out and the whole house and the servants and the neighbors following him. And he came by the side of a well and he threw a big rock in it and he stood by the side behind a tree. The whole house and the servants and the neighbors all gathered on the well. They thought that the thief has jumped in. And they said, now there is no problem. In the morning we will see. Either he will be dead or he will go to the jail. And they went back. Now the son came back home and the father was fast asleep and snoring. He pulled the blanket, through the blanket and said, have you gone mad? And the father said, now there is no problem. You are back so you have learned that. Now go to sleep. And from tomorrow you start on your own. But the son said, tell me why you did this. The father said, it is not a question of teaching. It is intuitive art. Such things happen. So I left you in a very accidental situation. Such things happen. This is no ordinary art. But now you have come back home, so I know you are a born thief. You are my son. Good Ramananda. This question is from Ramananda. Last time you were a beggar. Now you are a thief. Be really a master thief. The sixth question. What is a rationalization? 
Rationalization is a pseudo-reason. Looks like reason but is not. In life you use it every day. You come from the office angry. The boss was nasty. But you could not be angry there. There you had to smile. He was shouting at you, screaming at you, and you were smiling. You were as soft as butter. You swallowed anger. You wanted to kill the man then and there. But that is not economical and can lead you into danger. So now you come back home. Now you start searching in a very unconscious way to find some excuse so you can throw out your anger. And your small child comes dancing and singing and you are angry and you say, not a single moment's peace. Stop! The whole day I have been tired and I come home and there is no peace even here. And you get angry. Now, rationally you manage as if the child has disturbed you. The child has been that way always. But today you were angry. Now you rationalize. Or you don't like the food the wife has prepared. Not that the food is bad. But you are searching. You are groping in the dark for some excuse. And then, if the food is not good, or you can prove that the food is not good, which is very easy, then you explode on the wife. And you rationalize. But you don't look at the real reason. If you really want to be awake and alert, and if you really want to be a religious person, you will have to drop all rationalizations. These rationalizations are very tricky. Because of these rationalizations, you can never look deep inside yourself. You find thousand and one ways to persuade yourself to pretend. These pretensions have to be dropped. If you are angry, let it be clear to yourself that it is anger. Better go to the wife and say, do something wrong please, I am angry and I want to throw it. That will be better, more alert. You tell your son that shout, jump, Break something. I am very angry. And I would like it to throw you. Help me. That will be more conscious. If you start living consciously, by and by you will see, in your life you have been rationalizing and rationalizing. You have not done anything else. Let me tell you a few anecdotes that will give you different 
angles of rationalization. There was a row in a small town between a Christian group of citizens and the Jewish community. The Christians were unveiling a statue of Jesus when a Christian became involved with a Jew. The Jew picked up a large stone and threw it at his enemy but stuck the statue instead, knocking off its head. He had not intended it but he could not let the incident go to last. A Jew never allows anything to go to last. There you are, he shouted triumphantly. If that had been Moses, he would have dugged. <laughs> now this is a rationalization. One has to find a way to escape out of it. And one has to use it for one's own benefit. You never allow to go anything to last. Good, bad, nectar, poison, whatsoever. You try to use it for your own profit. But by and by this becomes such a deep-rooted habit that you completely forget about real reasons. The fighter had a good chance to capture the championship if he trained diligently, but he could not break the habit of indulging in New York nightlife. Finally, his manager was forced to lay down the law. Either you quit the nightlife until after the bout, he ordered, or I will cancel the bout on the grounds that you are out of condition. The fighter agreed to behave himself, and all went well for about a week. Then the manager found the fighter sneaking into camp at four in the morning. Well, what is your alibi this time? The manager asked in disgust. I heard a noise, the fighter explained. So I got up to investigate. Eh, well, how come you are all dressed up in a tuxedo? I thought it might be a lady burglar. <laughs> One goes on and on, defending oneself, creating more and more lies around oneself. If you look yourself honestly, you will find nothing but a bundle of lies. That's why people don't look at themselves, because it is horrible to look at. The whole thing is just a lie. Socrates says, know thyself. The Upanishads say, look within. Jesus and Buddha and Lao Tzu, they all go and teaching. Close your eyes and go within, but you cannot go. Because whenever you look within, there are lies and lies. Cues upon cues of lies. It is horrible to look at those lies that you have lived, that you have pretended to live.
A man who is really in search of truth has to drop all these rationalizations. The textile man seated in Furstins, the Lindis of the Lower East Side, and discussing the finer things life has to offer. The best, said Natch Pineus, is a nice juicy steak, smothered in onions and mushrooms with crisp French fried potatoes. I don't agree answered Lau Goldberg. The best is borst, a boiled potato and a good piece of herring. Sarfman shook his head. I am sorry, gentlemen. To me the best is a date with Lana Turner, Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe. Aha! replied Pineus and Goldberg. And who is talking about the very best? Immediately, they were talking about the best. Now they say, who is talking about the very best? You can always find a loophole to protect. And the mind is very cunning. If you really want to get out of the cunningness of the mind, which is not deceiving anybody but yourself, you will have to find out how the mind has become trained in finding rationalizations, loopholes, false reasons, pretensions, masks, lies. It has become really a great inventive force in your life. And it is not about big things, about small things too. Your smile, the way you look at people, the way you walk, all are lies. You never walk as if you are alone on the earth. You never smile as if the smile is coming from your inner being. It is always a pretension. It is always a language. A gesture. Look at people and you will find a mess. Their eyes say one thing, their lips say another thing, their words say something else, their hands are expressing something else. But nobody looks because everybody is so much drowned in his own lies. How can you look at others? Gurdjieff took his disciples far away in a Russian town, Tiflis, for three months. They kept absolutely silent for three months. Silence was really absolute. Not even through gestures they had to show anything. Not even through eyes they have to recognize that somebody else is present. And in one simple house, a small house, 30 persons. And each had to live as if he is alone. 27 left. 
only three were left in the house. After three months, when these three persons, Gurjev brought them to the Tiflis town and said to them, Look around. Ospinsky was one of these three disciples. And Ospinsky writes in his diary that I could not believe. I saw dead people walking, lies and lies and lies. Nobody was true. And that day Ospinsky says, I recognize Gurjev and his truth. Only he was standing there alone in that whole town of thousands of people who was true. But Ospinsky says, before that I had never imagined such a situation. I had never thought that all these people are just lies. The day your meditation will enter in your being, you will be surprised. You will find millions of people just moving, somnambulistic, in deep sleep, living lies, corpses. And only then you can recognize a Buddha. Only then you can recognize who is enlightened. Before that it is impossible. And the way towards it to throw all rationalizations. Next time you start rationalizing something, immediately stop, then and there. The moment you catch hold of yourself red-handed, stop it immediately. Even if it feels awkward. You were just going to smile, a friend came to meet you and you were just going to smile and you know it is a lie. Stop it. Let it disappear immediately from your lips. And tell your friend that, excuse me, I was just going to smile and it was false. And he will feel more love from you. Because how through falsity love can flow? You were just going to say something which is false. Stop immediately, even if you catch hold yourself in the middle of the sentence, then and there. Don't complete the sentence. Ask forgiveness. Watch out. It will take a little courage and a little time and a little patience to get rid of rationalizations. But that's a must. Once rationalizations are gone, suddenly you are vulnerable. The China wall has disappeared. Finkelstein was frantic. For five weeks now, he had been able to he had not been able to do anything in the way of business because he had forgotten the combination to the safe. His partner, Kanubovitz, had gone away on an extended motor trip and there was no word from him. Then one day the phone rang. Is he? Finkelstein shouted into the phone. Thank God you called. I can't do any business. I had to lay off the whole shop, fire the salesman, refuse orders from our biggest accounts and just stay here in the office and wait for your call. 
What happens? Ask the partners. It is the safe. I have forgot the combination. That is simple. Turn once left and twice right. But how about the numbers? It does not matter, said the partner. The lock is broke. It is as simple as that. Once rationalizations are dropped, in fact there is no lock. You are open. You can enter into your being. Sometimes it happens that if there is no lock and you think there is a lock and you go on finding keys and inventing keys and you waste your time. It happened in the life of Houdini. He was imprisoned in many jails, chained many times, but he will come within seconds out of the chains, out of the prison cells. Nobody has been able to put him in a jail. But in Italy, it happened that for three hours he could not come out of the cell. And there were thousands of people waiting for him to come. And what happened? It has never happened before. Has the police succeeded? Has they created a situation in which the Houdini, the great magician, cannot come out? And when he came out, he was perspiring and tired and exhausted. And he simply fell out. And they asked, what happened? He said, they befooled me, they tricked me. There was no lock. And I was simply trying to open the lock and there was no lock. The door was not locked. They tricked me. So when after three hours of strenuous work on the lock, I simply felt the door opened. On your inner being there is no lock. There has never been. No key is needed. No truth is needed. Just lies have to be dropped. And truth will assert itself. It is burning right this moment inside your being. But there is a great layer of lies, layer upon layers. And you cannot see the light. Rationalization is one of the very cunning tricks of the mind to create the china wall around you. You are imprisoned in your rationalizations. If you want to be liberated, drop rationalizations. And nobody else can do it for you. Only you can do it for you. It is your responsibility. If you want to be miserable, then it is good. If you don't want to be miserable, start dropping lies in your life. There is no need to go to the Himalayas and there is no need to go to any temple and church and there is no need to go into the scriptures, Bible, Quran and Vedas. If you can do only one simple thing of dropping lies, falsehoods, unauthentic gestures, you will arrive.
The seventh question, why do sannyasins have to change their names and wear a mala? The spiritual jet set talks about all these enlightened masters. Bhagwan is more enlightened than Oscar. Oscar is more enlightened. How can we tell what it means? First, there is no reason why sannyasins are in orange and wear a mala, except that that I am eccentric about it. <laughs> I am a little in love with the orange and I am also in love with myself, hence the mala. <laughs> this is the truth, if you understand. If you need some rationalization, you can ask my disciples. <laughs> and the second question, Bhagwan is more enlightened than Oscar, Oscar is more enlightened than, how can we tell what it means? Enlightenment is never more or less. Either one is enlightened or one is not. It is not a question of more or less. How can you be more enlightened and less enlightened? This is absurd. Enlightenment is not a relative concept. Either one has arrived or one has not arrived. How can you partially arrive? You have come back home. Can you say, I have come partially back home? Only one leg and the head has not come. It happened in a jail. A man was imprisoned and then immediately the second day he started saying that his teeth are aching. So the teeth were removed. After a few days he started saying that his appendix so appendix was removed. Then he said, the tonsils. Then the tonsils were removed and the jailer came and he said, I know what you are doing. By and by you are getting out of the prison. <laughs> you cannot. Either one is enlightened or one is not. There is no part enlightenment. One thing, remember always that enlightened people cannot be compared. But this foolishness has persisted down the ages. Jainas will say, Mahavira is more enlightened than Buddha. Buddhists will say, Buddha is more enlightened than Mahavira. Hindus will say, Krishna is more enlightened than either of them and so on and so forth. But the whole idea of more and less is absurd. Those who are enlightened, they are simply enlightened. Nobody is superior and nobody is inferior. Second thing, how can we tell what it means? You cannot. And there is no need. 
and whatsoever you tell will be wrong. You are not yet enlightened. It will be as if a blind man talks about light. All that he says is meaningless. He may have heard much about light. He may have even read through braille much about light. He may have consulted great physicists who know much about light. He may have talked to painters and poets who are deeply in love with light. But still, a blind man is a blind man. Whatsoever he says is going to be wrong because he is not in the situation to say. So you please, you have enough worries as it is. Don't take these worries. Who is enlightened and who is not? Rather, you become enlightened and you will know. The last question. Few short questions, Bhagwan. Why you could not speak for a year and a half after your birth? I was so surprised at my birth. That is why. I had to get over that surprise and it took one and a half years. What you were doing second when you were a kid? I did nothing when I was a kid. I knew what I wanted to be when I grew up and I practiced for it. And the third, what do you say about drinking? A difficult question. <laughs> Don't take it seriously. A drink in time is fine. Enough for today. <laughs>